Good to see you guys. My name is Brian, one of the pastors here at the Summit, and excited to jump back into Romans with you. Um, so I wrote this sermon this past Tuesday. Before I wrote this sermon on this past Tuesday, I dropped my oldest daughter, Hannah, off to school for the very first time in her life and our life. I have a picture here of this. I know. She's rocking the Spider-Man shoes to make sure that she's the coolest kid in school. That was my responsibility. Um, I showed up for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, because Andy preached a couple weeks ago and got to show cute kids of, or pictures of his kids uh, going to school for the first time, so I wanted to turn. And two, to let you know that um, as I was writing this sermon, I was just dead inside the entire time. I just sat in a coffee shop, tears of sadness and pride of my oldest child spilling onto my MacBook because I had just done this. So let's jump into it. Uh, let's go ahead and jump into it. Romans, Romans chapter 12. Um, we're teaching through Romans for the entirety of the year, and um, we took a bit of a break for the summer, but Romans 1 through 11, if you could sum it up in a single statement, Paul, who is the author of Romans, is telling us what it is that God has done, what it is that God has done for us in the gospel. And Romans chapter 12 is a considerable shift where Paul is going to talk to us about what it is that we're supposed to do in light of what it is that God has done, who it is that we are supposed to be in light of who God has revealed himself to be. So even as we walk throughout this in the remainder of the fall, we'll finish Romans right before we kick off our Advent series, but hold that in the back of your mind. We're learning about who we are supposed to be and what it is that we're supposed to do in light of who God is and in light of what he has done for you. And if we could sum up what we are called to do in light of what it is that God has done, Paul's going to use this language this morning, we'll see. Um, is this idea that we are meant to live lives of worship in response to who God is and what he's done. We're supposed to live lives of worship. Um, and I feel like worship is one of those words that if you've been around church for any period of time, a lot of times that phrase or expression is dropped, and we kind of all assume that everybody knows what we're talking about, um, but a lot of us don't. And so I want to kind of define what I mean there and the significance there, and then we'll go ahead and dive into the text. So when I say worship, what I mean is that the posture of our hearts and the conduct of our lives are such that we are giving to God the value, the worth, the honor that he alone deserves as the most important being of the universe. That word worship is actually derived from an old English word of worth hyphen ship, worth ship as in giving to something, acknowledging something's due worth and, and kind of attributing to it the worth that it deserves. So as we think about worshiping God, we are trying to give him with the conduct of our lives, with the posture of our hearts, the worth that he deserves in light of who he has revealed himself to be. Now, let me just, before we again dive into the text, I want us to feel kind of the weight of this significance and so what I want to do is do a bit of a thinking exercise together. And so I'm going to run through three scenarios with you that I want you to kind of put yourself in the place of, even if this might not be an everyday occurrence for you. Um, and then we'll kind of, we'll, we'll dive in. But all right, scenario one. So I want you to imagine that you're a stay-at-home parent. And uh, plenty of studies have been done about this. The most difficult job in the United States, I don't know if you know this, is stay-at-home parent. Because one, you don't get paid for it at all. That's not a great job to have. And it's really hard. It's like really, really demanding. And so let's say you're a stay-at-home parent, and you just did 10, 11 consecutive hours of cleaning pee off of different parts of the house and yourself, cleaning diapers, making meals, 
trying to organize the house, trying to put toys back, and your toddler thinks it's hilarious to mess up the toys that you just put back. You just had 10 or 11 unbroken. Like, you can't take a 15. You can't say to your toddler, like, hey, I'm going to take 15. I'll be right back, right? Like, you've got you to gotta be there the entire time. And your spouse arrives home from work, and the first thing that's said is not, hey, thank you so much for serving our family in this way. The first thing it said is not, how is your day? But the first thing that's said is, hey, look, why isn't dinner ready and hot on the table? Like, I'm really hungry. I've been working all day. All right, that's just scenario one. Put yourself, put yourself there. Scenario two. Some of you can only think about that. So let's move to the next one, all right? Scenario two. Um, scenario two. Let's say that um, in your career, in your field, you poured your life into a project, you poured your life into a paper, maybe you write or whatever it might be, and uh, you, know, you knew something was really big coming up, and uh, you poured your life into it, and you produced this paper, you produced this book, you produced this project that is fantastic. It's brilliant. You know it's going to kill. You know you are guaranteed some sort of accolades or a promotion. And you find out about two days removed from you putting out that particular work or project that another one of your coworkers or another one of your colleagues has actually stolen that work, has plagiarized it, and is masquerading like that work is their own and are receiving all the accolades that you deserved. All right, that's scenario two. Scenario three, you go to happy hour with uh, some of your coworkers, and you had a friend of a friend there, and this dude has obviously had one or two drinks too many, and so he's becoming kind of loose in what it is that he says, and he, without knowing you whatsoever, um, just sort of gives this broad, sweeping, generalization stereotype of who you are as a person on the basis of maybe your gender or your ethnicity or what you do for a living. You know, he says something like, oh, you're just a woman, so that means that, 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 and um, everybody kind of looks at you to see how you're going to handle that situation. All right. Now, what is the common thread that's running through all of those scenarios? Let me ask it this way. Why is it that so many of our fights in marriage, or even just with your roommates, stem from you not feeling appreciated? Why is it that maybe the most serious offense that you can commit can commit in an academic setting is plagiarism, and actually, if you do that in an academic setting, there's a good chance that you'll be fired or you'll be expelled. Why is it that even in a culture that doesn't uphold a biblical worldview, the stereotyping of another is seen as maybe the most egregious offense that you can commit against another human being? Here's why. Because the common thread that unites all those scenarios with one another is you or somebody around you not receiving the worth that they're due. We are outraged when we are robbed of the worth we believe we deserve. We are outraged when somebody else is robbed of the worth that they deserve. We collectively, as a culture, even regardless of what we might believe about who God is, understand that it is a very serious thing not to attribute to another or ourselves the worth we feel that we're entitled to. And if we can understand that as a culture, how much more significant is it that the God of the Bible, the God that Paul has spent Romans 1 through 11 telling us is the most important entity in the totality of the universe, that he would be worshipped, that he would be given the due worth and value and honor that he exclusively deserves. That is really what Romans 12 through 16 is all about. All right, so we're going to dive into it and see why this is so significant. Now, what we're going to do are two things. We're going to remind ourselves of what it is that God has done as we bring Romans 11 to a close and we're going to talk about what we should do as a response. So let's look first at what God has done. So 
Paul is now bringing the first 11 chapters to a close, and before we see how he concludes chapter 11, let's just remind ourselves of aspects, because, you know, we took a bit of a break, of what Paul has been proclaiming that God has done for us in the gospel. So I'm just going to walk you through a 10,000-foot view of what's happened in Romans up to this point. Romans 1, that God has been revealed as the creator whose power and prowess is on display in all creation, that his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. Romans 2, we're told that God is perfectly just in his nature, that God shows no partiality. Romans 3, that though all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory, God is gracious, that we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Romans 4, that God has mysteriously been bringing redemption to his fallen creation by grace through faith that God gifts righteousness and forgiveness through Jesus, that it will be counted for us, to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The Romans 5, even though we struggle to believe that this would be true for our lives, God gifts us his Holy Spirit to tell us and to indwell us so that we know that we are loved, that God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Romans 6, that God's redemption does more than save us, but changes us to be victorious over sin, that we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Romans 7, we're left not to our own intellect or intuition or intelligence to know right from wrong, but God declares to us what is good, right, and true for our flourishing. Paul says that I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Romans 8, God declares that he has not only saved us, but changes us and loves us, that the most important being in the universe has uniquely set his love upon us personally and individually in the gospel, that if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him graciously give us all things? Romans 9, God's perfect sovereign, unparalleled will cannot be thwarted, even in times where the circumstances of the world seem to tell us a far different narrative. It is not as though the word of God has failed. In Romans 10, the fruit of God's sovereign will in the world is that he is creating for himself a people, a holy nation, his beloved from every tribe and tongue and people that will celebrate and declare his glory together for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him for everyone who calls on the name will be saved. And that then is a mere snapshot of what Paul has been declaring to us about who God is and what it is that God has done for us in the gospel. And he concludes this basically opening section of Romans 1 through 11 in verse 33 in this way. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how unscrutable his ways. The God is the most important, valuable rich being in the universe. And then to drive this point home, he quotes two different aspects of the Old Testament. The first is from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 13, when he says this, for who has known the mind of the Lord, who has been his counselor, that the mind of the Lord, the intellect of the Lord, the intelligence of the Lord puts even the most brilliant human minds to shame, contrasts us to the way that we instinctually think a lot of times about who God is, that a lot of times we think to ourselves, you know, if I were in charge, I would actually leave things a lot better around here in this thing called the cosmos. What does God know? What is best for me? I know what's best for me. I know what's best for other people. And Paul is saying, no, humble yourselves. God is the most intellectually supreme being in the universe. His will is infinitely perfect. Then in Job 40. Two, or he quotes then Job 40, verse 
to, when he says this, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid. That God has accomplished so much that we cannot begin to repay him. How often we think that we sort of have this um, transactional relationship with God, right? Like he's kind of a little bit better than us, but not that much better than us. And consequently, if we do something for him, we'll put him in our debt and he'll owe us something. So God, if you will, um, you know, let me pass this test. If you'll just let me get married, if you'll just have this relationship work out, if you'll just have this person move away because I get anxious when I see them at the grocery store. And so I'd love for them to move away. I'll go to church two times a month. That's very devout in Denver, as opposed to the one time occasionally a month that I will go. This very bargaining transactional relationship and Paul's like what are you like no God owes us nothing we owe him everything he is the most important being in the entirety of the universe and then he concludes this this sort of prayer that he just spontaneously breaks into by saying this in verse 36 for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever amen Scholars believe that this is an early church Trinitarian blessing and maybe an early church hymn that would ever be, even be sung in the first churches, a declaration that God is the originator, the sustainer, and the goal of the whole universe. And then he concludes it with amen, which was just a Greek way. The New Testament was originally written in Greek. Amen was just a Greek way of saying, like, that's true. That's right. That's, like, truly, that is right. And so it's this beautiful image that's almost conjured up in our minds where you can imagine this ragtag group of persecuted, very rough around the edges, Roman believers gathering together to hear Paul declare that God is the originator, God is the sustainer, God is the goal of the entire universe and our lives as well. And they couldn't help but cry out, amen, because they're like, yeah, that's true. That's right. We believe that. That's why it's worth us giving up everything to make this the pursuit of our lives. And then Paul shifts then to what we should do in light of what it is that God has done for us. And so we then jump into chapter 12. So Paul says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. So Paul is saying that in light of God's merciful, beautiful work in the world and in our lives, here's what I am pleading with you. Here's what I'm appealing for you to go and do with your life. He says this, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So there's that concept of worship jumping off the page there. This is your spiritual worship. Now, what's interesting is in the New Testament, there's several Greek words used for worship. And the most frequent, kind of the, most, kind of the default word that Paul would have typically used for worship is a word proskuneo, which is where we get our word prostrate from. So if you think about laying prostrate before something, that's where we get that word um, from is proskuneo. But Paul actually doesn't use that word here in Romans 12. He uses a unique uh, connection of two words that if you translate it literally means rational service. That's what it means, rational service. And the reason that Paul is doing this is to draw out the concept of causation here, of cause and effect, that the effect on our lives of who God is and what God has done is and should be one of worship, that that is the rational, the rational response in all of our lives and response to who God has revealed himself to be. Here's the important application here, is that a life centered on the worship of God 
is not uh, restricted to a few religious fanatics who are kind of like on the fringes and extreme, but instead a life of worship is for those who understand the rational connection between who God is and who we are supposed to be. That's what Paul's drawing out there. This is a simple idea of cause and effect. When you get a glimpse of who God is and the way he's treated you, the totality of your life is offered in joyful, holistic, no boundaries, no holds barred. I'll lose and risk everything to attribute to you the worth that you alone deserve. Now, it's like Paul then anticipates. Remember, he's talking to a group of people who are new Christians, and the thing I love about being around people who are exploring spirituality or exploring Christianity is they're not like comfortable with religious jargon, you know. So they're like, "I don't know what you mean when you say worship, Paul." Um, and I love that, like just the honesty there. And it's almost like Paul anticipates people being like, "Okay, like so you're telling us our lives are supposed to be about worship. What is that going to mean then? What am I supposed to do as I try to live a life of worship?" And what happens then is Paul, in the remainder of Romans 12, uh, 1 through 2, um, I know we read up to verse 3, and I totally, that's my fault. We're, only, we're starting verse 3 next week. So we're just doing 1 through 2. But what he dives into in 1 through 2 is basically he gives um, almost like a table of contents of what the remaining chapters are going to be. He just introduces some concepts to say, hey, here are three different aspects of worship that I'm just going to introduce you to, and then we'll dive into uh, deeper in the following week. So let's be introduced then as we strive to then live lives of worship as our rational response to who God has revealed himself to be. There are three particular ways that Paul is going to introduce to us that should flesh out in our lives. One, worship and our body. Paul says this, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, what Paul was combating is a little bit of background of what's going on. As Paul was writing, one of the false belief systems Paul was combating was this idea or this spiritual belief system called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism, it's, in its simplest form, is this idea of kind of the intellect and the spiritual is good um, and important and significant. The physical is not good, is insignificant, and could even be viewed as bad. And Paul was always combating this false belief system to say, no, what matters just as much as the way you think and the way you feel is what you are doing with the physical body that has been entrusted to you by your creator. To say that the physical is bad is a fundamentally um, uh, anti-Christian belief. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was on a roll there. Okay, I'm coming back now. Uh, uh, (laughs) Fundamentally uh, unchristian belief. I'll, I'll... since I'm stumbling on my words, I'll read you somebody who says this very uh, impressively, and then we'll come back, and I'll try hopefully be back on my game. Uh, this is from Eugene Peterson, and I read this this past week, and I thought it was really good, it, kind of uh, explaining how the Christian faith, in the Christian faith, the physical matters as much as the spiritual. Peterson writes this, the word did not become a good idea, or a numinous feeling, or a moral aspiration. The word became flesh, and went on to change water into wine, and wine into blood. Things matter. The physical is holy. In the opening sentences of the Bible, God spoke a world of energy and matter into being. Light, moon, stars, earth, vegetation, fish, birds, man, woman. Not love and virtue, faith and salvation, hope and judgment, though they will come soon enough. The opening lines of Genesis sound more like minutes cried out in a physics laboratory than in a prayer meeting. What Paul is doing is taking this fairly cerebral concept down into our everyday lives to say not only does the physical matter, but what we do with our physical bodies 
matters is most. What we do with our physical bodies is one of the most crucial ways that we will choose to worship God. That is the way that we will understand sexuality and who we will have sex with, within what boundaries, what we put into our bodies. And that's not just kind of like drugs and do you get drunk or not, but that's the food that we even consume. That what we do with our physical bodies, this is what Paul is connecting for them, that what we do with our physical bodies is one of the most crucial and important ways that we will determine if we are worshiping God and whether or not God deserves, if he has the worth to define what is good, right, and true in the areas of life that matter the most, for example, like the category of sexuality, like the category of what we put in our body. I think if we're honest, as a culture, a lot of times the disposition of our hearts is no one, including God, has the right to tell me what to do in that area of my life. And I'll believe certain things about God, but I don't want him kind of getting into the nook and cranny of my life of like who I sleep with and what boundaries. And it's like Paul is just starting to introduce a really challenging question. I know it's uniquely challenging for a culture like our own where autonomy is king, the individual is king. You are the final arbiter of truth in your life for what matters most. And Paul is saying, that's actually not right. God is. God is. And will you, will I, will we collectively as a people be a city within the city who see ourselves as something more significant and substantive than a clump of cells with these um, unfulfilled urges that we have to do whatever we can in order to sort of have those itches scratched? Will we see ourselves as something more significant than just a like this physical mass, and it's mine, and I willed it into existence, where we, we actually come to a place to say, no, I didn't will my body into existence. It was gifted to me by my creator. We are something more than a clump of cells. We are something more than a collective of uh, uh, unmet urges, but we are image bearers of the divine. And if you can believe that you are an image bearer of the divine, then what you do with that image that's been gifted to you matters. And so Paul is just starting with this question to say, like, okay, like, does God have the type of worth that he gets to determine what's right or wrong for what we do with our bodies? I'm just going to dive into it later. Two, worship in our minds. Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So Paul saying we not only worship God with our bodies, but with our minds. So don't miss this. Paul is saying there's no square inch of who we are as human beings that is not meant to be offered in joyful submission to the worship of God. Paul says... We are supposed to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. Now, Paul spent much of Romans telling us that the human condition is one that is corrupted by a disease called sin. And Paul is kind of starting to apply the way that sin impacts the totality of the cosmos, that sin applies not only our bodies, it's not just that we die, but it impacts our minds as well. This is something that theologians call total depravity. The idea of total depravity is not that like you are bad, as bad as you can be all the time. The idea of total depravity is every part of who you are and who I am is corrupted by sin. If sin were blue, we'd be blue all over. That's the idea. And what this means 
is that not only our bodies, but our minds are corrupted. Now, this goes directly against the culture that a lot of times kind of the posture of even the city that we live in is that we're educated, we're enlightened, we have our own best interests in mind. If anybody knows what's good, if anybody knows what's right, if anybody knows what's true for us individually and socially as a whole, it's us, right? Like, like of course we have our own best interests in mind. And I think that sounds so good until you press into it and you think critically about it, doesn't it? Now, we've said this before, I really believe this with my whole heart. That's why I say it a lot. When I am a little bit self-aware about my life and I think back on my past, I have always talked myself into the worst decisions that I've made for myself. Anybody, let me, let, me ask, let me ask it another way. Any of you ever made a super self-destructive decision and right before making that super self-destructive decision or getting into some sort of crazy dysfunctional relationship been like, you know what I'm really pumped to do? I'm really pumped to get into some dysfunction. Right, like, like anybody been like, man, I can't wait to be fighting with this dude at three in the morning via text, and he's sending emojis, and I'm sending emojis, and we're all being passive aggressive back to one another. Man, I can't wait to have a relationship like that. I'm jumping headlong. I know exactly what I'm getting myself into, and I can't wait to go after that thing. Anybody, anybody, anybody? No, you're like, I'm gonna marry that guy. Right, like that's like that's what it's like. And your friends, they're like man, I wouldn't date that guy. And you're like, man, you don't know love like we know love. I'm going to marry that guy. You know, and it's like, man, it's like us against the world, Romeo and Juliet. And you, you talked yourself into it, right? Like, like nobody plans to ruin their life. We talk ourselves into it. Man, like that should horrify us a little bit. I know it's funny, but it, like it should horrify us that we exist in this culture that if we don't think critically is like, yeah, of course you know what's best for you and I know what's best for me. Yeah, you just gotta like follow your heart and do what seems right to you. It's like, I don't know about you, but like my heart perpetually lies to me. My mind, like I intellectually talk myself into making decisions that will be bad for me, but before I jump into a decision that will be bad for me, I tell myself this is gonna be good for me. And that should freak me out a little bit. And you study history, and you look at the worst people in the history of the world, and especially, like, look at them in the just past 100 years, and what you find is not cruel dictators that have, like, you know, they're wearing all black and twisting their evil bad guy mustache, <laughs> uh, you know, like a Bond villain or something like that. You read their journals, you read their diaries, and they actually believe that the very things that they're doing, even if it means killing millions upon millions of people, is actually producing a greater good for humanity. They actually believe that that. What Paul's saying here is true. Like, we need our minds renewed. Thanks be to God who gifts us in the gospel, not just a new body, but Paul even taught, writes elsewhere about being gifted the mind of Christ. What good news it is that God has given us his word, not just to have some sort of like feeble obligatory devotion out of so that I can accumulate a little bit of information, but instead that the mind of God would be revealed so that my misunderstandings of what's good, right, and true for my life would be shattered and God who loves me more than I even love me would speak into my life so that I would align my life to what he declares to be good, right, and true. How much do we actually need one another and, you know, for accountability and to challenge one another and to gather together and have somebody even kind of yell at you a little bit like this because probably in your place of work, people are not challenging you in this way. Right, not to retreat in isolation to live out the Denver dream because what we understand if we're a little bit self-aware is that when we're in isolation, we get weird. 
Like mutant things grow in secret gardens, all right? <laughs> but like, but you know, like if you ever struggled with depression, if you ever struggled with anxiety, what's the narrative that's going through your head? Is like, I just want to be alone. I just want to be away from people. I don't want to be with the people of God. And that's not the truth. I'm saying that somebody wrestles with that. I'm saying that somebody wrestles with that. It's like, like we need the word of God. We need the people of God. We need God to define what is good, right, and true for our lives. Not our instinct, not our intellect, not our intelligence. God. God. And he offers that to us through his word, through his people, through his spirit. Finally, not just worship. Paul's not just going to introduce to us worship in the body and worship in the mind, but worship in the culture. Paul introduces a difficult concept that he'll dive into deeper in verse 2 when he says this, do not be conformed to this world. And here's the difficult reality he's bringing to our attention. As pumped as you might be up to this point, here comes a little bit of the bad news, is that if God is going to be the one who determines how you handle your body and how you think with your mind, there will be a fundamental opposition that exists between you and the culture that doesn't think that way. And I think the reason this is so unsettling is because this is sort of just Uncle Brian stepping away and just making an observation of the culture, and then I'll come back to the Word of God. So this is just my opinion. Is I feel like there's this theme in Denver of self-identifying followers of Jesus who desire to be fully faithful to Jesus and in no way confrontational with the culture in which they exist. Right, probably some of you feel that way. Like, like I want to worship God. I'm like serious about my faith. I want to love Jesus. And I in no way want to be perceived as weird or threatening or backwards by the non-Christian people I work with or hang out with. And I'm just going to try to hopefully exist in that tension. It'll be fine. And Paul is lovingly telling you, like, that is not an option afforded to us. You pick one or the other. And you determine, does God possess the type of worth for us to maybe, like, be offensive at times. You study the history of the church. The, the sad thing to me about somebody who takes that posture is it negates the sacrifice of the men and women who have come before us for two millennia, who really, without exception, in every culture that they have tried to exist within. And think about this. We've talked about this before. There's an intrinsic offense to the gospel in every culture in which it exists. And what you study when you study church history is every follower of Jesus in cities where their worldview was viewed as being weird, is they would either be labeled as being, at best, kind of different and odd and outsiders, at worst, as being dangerous. Because anytime you say that the king is not king, anytime you say the politicians aren't king, anytime you say that the nation or the state or the kingdom isn't king, whenever you say that the kind of cultural opinion of the day that's ever changing is not king, whenever you say that Jesus is king and we live exclusively and finally for his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, you will be labeled either as at best weird, different, outsider, unusual, uncomfortable to hang out with at times, or at worst, as being dangerous. And I just think that has to challenge some of us who just, like, we really want to be relevant, and we really want to be cool, and we really want to be liked, and we really don't want to be an outsider, if we're just honest. And I feel this too. It's not, what, <laughs> it's not like what Paul is calling us to, is to be like, you know, there's, there's ways to be offensive that are ignorant and backwards and stupid and unnecessary. 
But there are ways to be offensive that are biblically faithful. And Paul is just preparing his original audience, and I think preparing us as well as, look, like if God possesses the type of worth to determine what you do with your body and what other people should do with their bodies, if God possesses the type of worth to determine the way you should think about right from wrong and what leads to human flourishing, then this is going to lead to you being put in a place, whether in small ways or really, really big ways, you answering a question, does God possess the type of worth to lose things for him, to lose respect, to lose the culture's opinion, um, favorable opinion, to lose relationships at times, to lose whatever it might be. Like, is God worth losing for? So Paul's going to dive into those things. Um, I'm going to say this, and then I'm going to be done. Can I tell you the thing that jumped out the most to me from this? This is just for free, as if we charge you for the other parts. But... um, this just, I was thinking about this this morning, so I'm just going to say this. I think in all this, you really see Paul's like, pastoral heart come out. And when he says, um, he says in verse 2, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, that idea of testing right there, um, it could be kind of almost like, oh my gosh, like, so you're saying that like, God's going to test me? Like most of us, if you have any sort of school background at all, aren't like, ooh, tests. I love tests. Now, there's different types of tests, right? So like what Paul's not saying here is that God just throws you into these situations to bizarrely test you. What, what Paul is referencing, you know, what, what is a test? A test is kind of a moment where things really matter, right? Like either you, you make it or you don't make it. And it's like Paul is writing to a group of people that he loves as a pastor. And he's like, okay, they're going to hear this letter, And they're going to go out, and they're going to make decisions about what they think about the world, what they think about the Bible, what they think about parenting, what they think about what the good life is, what they think about the way they handle their money, what they think about the way they handle their sexuality. Like, they are going to go out from this gathering in this room, and they're going to go do life, and they're going to be tested. Like, they're going to be put in places in a million different ways for the following several days before they gather together again, and they're going to make decisions that will profoundly impact their life for the better or for the worse and the people around them as well. And it's like Paul's just saying, like, man, like, what I'm not trying to get you to do is to pass some weird, you know, like, chemistry test or something like that. Man, like, I'm trying to have you flourish in the areas of life that matter the most. And that's what I feel about this as well. This is what I would say all our pastors feel for you guys as well. We're not just trying to do is like, if I could just get you to think the way that I think, if I could just get you to act the way that I act. No, it's like, I know that we will scatter from this room and you will go throughout this city and you will make decisions about what you're going to do with your body. You're going to make decisions about what you believe with your mind. You're going to make decisions about the way you're going to parent your kids and the way you impact the next generation and the way this city looks. Think about this, 100 years from now, if your kids end up living here as well. You're going to make decisions that will profoundly impact your life for the better or for the worse. You're going to make decisions about the stuff of life that matters the most. And what we desire for you pastorally is that when you come to moments of testing, and we all have them, don't we? That you would be able to discern what is the will of God, even when it's hard that you would be faithful even when it's countercultural, that you would flourish 
Because God exclusively can have you flourish. Like, that's why. It's because we love you. Like, we really do love you. And I just, I feel like I needed to say that. You see Paul's pastoral heart on, on display, and it's like, I feel like it hopefully speaks to our pastoral heart as well. Like, that's why this stuff matters. That's why it's important for you to be here for the rest of this series, and um, hopefully as long as you're here in Denver as well. That's why it's important to maybe join this church. And, like, you know, I, I know NFL football starts in an hour, and some of you are like, man, I'm not going to think about joining a church when I got NFL football starting in an hour. It's like, this is more important than that stuff, and I'm saying that as a huge sports fan. Like, this is the stuff in my life that actually matters. Man, like, none of those guys with the ball know who you are, know who I am, okay? Like, God knows you. He made you. He loves you. He's designed you. And it's time to stop putting off the stuff of life that matters the most for the stuff of life that doesn't really matter that much. Hopefully you're encouraged by that. I'm going to pray and pray that you are. <laughs> and uh, the 9 o'clock just gets what I'm thinking. So... Uh, Lord, we love you, and we're thankful for you, and um, very seriously, I do pray that people would feel encouraged and not condemned, but challenged at the same time, and not challenged from me, but challenged by your spirit and by your word. Um, like, we desire that people would just, like, really love you. Like, it's just, in some ways, it's, like, frustratingly simple, but, like, like, if we could just, like, love you and obey you, that is where our joy is found. That is where our flourishing is found. And forgive us for perpetually believing that um, we know something that's better for ourselves. God, in this time, let us respond rightly. And let us just even, in the way we sing, in the way we respond, um, proclaim that like we love you more than us. We love you more than the opinion of the culture. We love you. We love you. And we want to obey you, and we want to know you, and we want to be changed by you. Let us uh, reflect that now in our response and our, in our uh, lives. We ask these things in your name. Amen.